Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast of the teaching at Life Journey Church in Crozet, Virginia. We believe that the gospel really is good news, that the blood of Jesus worked, and that Jesus meant it when he said, it is finished. In Christ, we are dead to sin and alive to God, forgiven and free, clean and close, holy and beloved, blessed and made new. If God is doing something special in your life, we would love for you to tell us about it. You can simply email us at info at lifejourneyva.com. One of the reasons we are able to provide these weekly podcasts is because of the generosity of people like you. If you would like to support the proclamation of the gospel of the grace of God, you can make a donation now on our website, lifejourneyva.com. Brandon, if you didn't, if you weren't here last week, uh, we weren't here. Uh, Brandon did a great job last uh, Sunday. I just listened to his um, message just in the last two or three days and just was really, really uh, grateful as I listened to it, to, to what the clarity that the Lord used through him to, to speak at the, about the pinnacle issue, the pinnacle event of, of, of life, of, of eternity, but also of here of uh, the book of John. As we've been going through the book of John since January, we get to this climax of the actual death of Jesus, his crucifixion. And uh, Brandon just did a great job. We're going to look today, if you had a title, we don't really title, I don't really title uh, sermons. Um, but if you had a title of today, it really would be um, what? what? What was or what is finished. What is finished? And so Brandon uh, included this verse in his passage last week. And before we move on to the resurrection, which is the next section of John, I just want to take one Sunday and just really investigate this one statement, three English words, I think only two Greek. What really is now finished? when Jesus said, it is finished. What is finished? Any math majors, mathologists, okay? I mean, not math, sorry, math on the head. Uh, English, that's the other subject. Any Englishologists? Okay, Here, here's what we're, yeah, math and English. Okay, so I've gotta say this. I've gotta say this really quick, you'll love it. Um, so Gwen, she, she does, uh, teaching like with the other two, she, like she does school, right? And I'm sure all of our kids have done that, you know. So she does school with the other two. Drake's like not really into it, but Reeson really is. And so she makes these signs on her door, and I'll take a picture. I'll send it. You'll love it. All right. She says it says um, teaching in progress. Do not disturb. Like big, you know, signs, block letters, and then the bottom side says uh, like something like. Uh, I'm serious. Teaching is happening. And then the Bible says, read the sign and sign S I N E. <laughs> and, and at first I like was like laughing, like, like, ha And then I was like, maybe that's like a really over like my level. Uh, what would it be called? Pun? You know, maybe she's teaching math, you know, like that would be pretty awesome. But I don't think that's the case. <laughs> she's eight. Um, so uh, I wanted to send you, I, I totally forgot to say that to you. Um, but uh, anyways, uh, uh, he did a great job of teaching on, on la- last week and when we were out. And, uh, and there's this, oh yeah, English majors. Um, so when you say it is finished, 
there's some there's some uh, some clarity that needs to happen, and the English term is antecedent. What is the antecedent to that pronoun it? Meaning, what is it referring to? What is the it? If 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 someone says it's full, that doesn't help me out any, does it? If I just say call Steve up, hey Steve, guess what man, it's full. Steve's gonna be like, uh, what? Your belly just finished lunch? Did you just get gas? The car is full? Like, what is full? And so you have to know what the it is referring to. Otherwise, the greatest, literally the last statement Jesus says before he's crucified is, a, is totally lost. If we don't know what it is. Does that make sense? So we're just going to spend one Sunday in our journey through John. Just ask that question. What is it? What is it referring to? And so uh, that's what we're going to do. Um, so this is a section that he spoke on last week. I'm not going to go through the details of it. We're just focusing on this, these three letters, these three words, it is finished. But for context, after this, after what? This is when Jesus is hanging on the cross. He tells John, hey, John, Mary, take care of Mary. Mary, John's going to take care of you. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. And I'm very tempted to talk about this, but, but Brandon did such an excellent job. I'll just refer you back to his message. It's on the podcast. And then John informs us, because John's standing right there, that a jar full of sour wine was standing there. So they after hearing Jesus say, it's, uh, um, I'm, thirst, I'm thirsty, they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. And the assumption is he, he, he drank it. And Brandon's interpretation of this is just beautiful. I loved it. And if you weren't here, I will say this, that, you know, what, what is this, why is this included? What is happening here? What is this a picture of? And Brandon beautifully talked about how the sour wine here, the yucky, who would drink it? They've saved it for the people who are about to die. Like who, who, would, want, who would bring sour wine to a festival? Nobody. It's the wine that didn't cure well. It's the throwaway wine. They're using that to kind of keep the dead people a little bit, uh, or about to die people, a little hydrated so that they can suffer longer. They put it onto a sponge of hyssop branch and they brought it to his mouth and he drinks it in. Brandon used the beautiful picture, conveyed the beautiful picture of how the, the filth, the, the, the sin, the sour wine being a picture of the sin of the world. In that moment, Jesus brings into him. And in that moment, that's just being a picture of that reality that's unseen. He brings the sin of the world, the sour filth into him. And in that moment, after receiving the sour wine, a shadow, a picture, uh, 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 Brandon suggests, I think it's beautiful, of receiving the filth of the world, the sin of the world, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So we're going to look at these three words, it is finished, to answer the question, what is it? What is it? What is finished? Well, there's a couple options I think that most uh, are familiar with or that we've heard or that we could conve con uh, convey or c contrive. 
One is that, well, it's obviously this is the earthly ministry of Jesus that's finished. It's finished. All the miracles, all the work, all the feeding of the 5,000, it, it being my earthly ministry, is finished. Maybe that's all that Jesus is talking about. But I don't think so. I don't think that's at all what Jesus is talking about. Um, the resurrection hasn't happened yet. Let's keep that in mind. The resurrection, is the resurrection not a part of Jesus' earthly ministry? You better believe it. And so if we were to look at this and he say, all right, it is finished, it being all the, the work that I've come to do, my earthly ministry is finished, then I think, uh, I, I just don't think that's correct because he, his resurrection is yet to happen and his resurrection is a part of his, what he had come to do. The 40 days of walking around after the resurrection, appearing to the disciples, commissioning to the disciples in, in Matthew 28. Is that not part of his earthly, quote unquote, ministry? Of course it is. And so I don't think we can just say it is his, his earthly ministry, his ministry to, the, to Israel, to the disciples. Well, maybe it that he's referring to here is the good news. The good news is finished. It is finished. The death is, I mean, he's, a, he's dying. It's finished. So the gospel is complete. The gospel is finished. And let's don't add anything to it. Well, what's the problem with that? Is the gospel finished in his death? No. No, it's not. The gospel is not just simply the death of the Christ, but also the what? The resurrection. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that it was the death, the burial, and the resurrection. He includes the burial as a big deal, which we won't get into right this very moment. But ultimately, the resurrection. In the book of Romans, Paul says that in chapter 5 that he was, he was um, crucified for our transgressions, for our sins. But even better than that, he was raised to give us life. So Paul would see the resurrection as a greater thing than even the death of Jesus. That doesn't mean that the death is not important. Of course not. But, that, but if it is finished means, hey, the gospel is done. It's accomplished. I've accomplished the good news. Is that true? And I think the answer is no. Because what hasn't happened yet? The rest of the story hasn't happened yet. What is finished? Taking care of his mom. It's finished. He just gave her off to John. John to now, remember, Jesus had other brothers and sisters. I think that'd be kind of weird if I was James, the brother of Jesus. <laughs> like, what are you saying to Jesus? Like, I can't take care of mom? You're going to give her off, hand her off to John? Like, what's going on here? I'm, I'm taking care of my family. It's finished. Is that what he's talking about? I don't think so. His life. How about that? He's about to die, so his life is finished. My life is the it is finished. Well, that makes sense. He's dying. He's, I mean, literally in the next like second, he breathes out the spirit. He, he's dead. My life is finished. Finito. Tetelestai. It's done. Well, is that true? Everybody shake your head like this, please. <laughs> no, it's not done at all because of the what? Again, the resurrection. There's this pesky resurrection that keeps getting in the way. Um, or how about his mission? His mission of coming to earth, his mission that he was sent by the Father to come to the earth, behold the Lamb of God, it's Jesus himself, his mission on earth is now over. It, my mission, the reason I was sent, not to, seek and, uh, not, not to be served, but to serve, 
to give my life as a ransom for many. My purpose, my mission is now finished, accomplished. It is accomplished. It is finished, my mission. Well, again, is that true? From what we know, especially in the writings of Paul, but just in the next chapter in John, is this true? That his mission is now over in his death? No. So what is over? You see the conundrum here? Something's over. He says it's over. But what is it? What is the it? Okay. Maybe it's finally this, 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 this pain. Finally this pain is over. This persecution. This trial. I just went through six illegal trials. Remember those? We just went through those. I just got beat between within inches of my life. If you have, if you're, if you didn't weren't here for some of those messages, I encourage you to go back. But those illegal trials, the law says, the, the Pharisaical law says that you can either beat somebody or kill somebody. You can't do both. They're doing both. Maybe he's just saying, finally, it, the pain, the agony, the persecution, is over. It's accomplished. It's finished. And he gave up his spirit. Maybe that's what he's talking about. But the problem with that is in the book of Acts, he appears before Saul, before he became a believer, on the road to, uh, uh, Emmaus, no, not Emmaus, uh, Damascus. Uh, I almost was, I was thinking Emmaus. That's why I was like, no, that's not it. Uh, The the road, the road, Um, on the road to Damascus. And do you remember what Jesus says to Saul? He says, Saul, Saul, why are you what? Who? Me. Me. So his persecution hadn't ended because he told Saul that Saul was persecuting him. And who was Saul persecuting? The what? The church. Because we are now one with him in the new covenant. And so for the church to be persecuted is for Christ himself to be persecuted. So it isn't the unfair treatment by, at human hands. That's not finished because it was still happening in the book of Acts well after Jesus' ascension. So again, do we, what is it that in his death was actually finished? Because I don't think it was his earthly ministry because he had more of that three days later. It wasn't his mission. He had this resurrection thing that he was to accomplish. It, it wasn't the gospel, because again, without the resurrection, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, we're fools if there wasn't a resurrection. There is no gospel apart from the resurrection. It wasn't the treatment, the bad treatment by man, because that continued well on, and even to this day, to which Jesus takes that personal. If you persecute my bride, you're persecuting me. I'll never forget, David, one of our um, discussion times afterwards, we talked about, that was part of the message, and you spoke up and said, look, I get that, because if someone were to come and to attack verbally or physically or whatever, my wife, look, it's on like Donkey Kong, like we're going to fist over this because she is my bride. And it was just so beautiful because that's exactly what I hear and feel from the Lord Jesus in that road to Damascus. Um, You're you're, you're persecuting me. This is me, not just my bride, it's me. So his persecution wasn't over. So what is finished? Don't you think it's important for us to know? I mean, this is like, again, the very last words of Jesus's life before his death and prior to his resurrection. There isn't anything else. He says a lot of stuff on the cross, stuff that John doesn't include. 
He talks about, you know, if my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He, he talks to the thief on either side. John doesn't include any of this is the, besides the, the Mary and the thirst stuff, this is it. I mean, this is the last thing Jesus says before he dies. Don't you think it's important that we believers in this Jesus at least try to wrap our head around what it is? I think so. But I just don't think we have. Like, I think we have, but I don't think like we Christianity really have. Because something drastic happened this day. Something that altered, in fact, something so big that the writer of Hebrews says it was the culmination of the ages. That's a pretty big deal for something to be the culmination of the ages. And so what we're going to do is we're going to try our best to answer this question of what is it. And we're going to go back actually to the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 9, to answer this question of what it is. And I don't have time. I really wish I did, but I don't. I'm going to honor your time more than I would like to. Um, and I'm going to give you a quick context of what's happening in the book of Daniel without reading all the scripture that, that, that supports it. So don't take my word for it. Read it yourself. But you can uh, at least maybe believe me for a few minutes here until you have a chance to read it. So what Daniel, the book of Daniel is happening. What's happening in the book of Daniel is the, the children of Israel have been captive, captured by the Babylonians. And they took away the best ones, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel, you know, the best ones. They've taken them back to Babylon and they're in captivity in Babylon for a period of time. And Israel has been destroyed. The temple's been destroyed. And uh, there's been some prophecy given that there's going to be a return to Jerusalem. But in the midst of this difficult time of uncertainty of what's going to happen, Daniel receives a vision from the Lord and he writes it down. And this is what it says. It says 70 weeks. Now weeks in the Hebrew, it just simply means period of sevens. So what I believe that simply means is not weeks in the sense of like seven days, but seven years. In 70 periods of sevens, 70 sevens, 490 years have been declared for your people and for your holy city. So the prophecy is 490 years have been prophesied for your people, for the holy city of Jerusalem. Um, Did I f skip out a verse? Yeah, sorry. So the verse before this, sorry, I should have put the verse before this, says that this from the, the that this the time that this starts, the time that this seventy seven starts. I'm very embarrassed because that's very important. Is from the decree when it's sent that Jerusalem can be rebuilt. So they're all in captivity. There are, and there's going to come a day when a decree is given by the Babylonian king to go back and rebuild Jerusalem. And what the vision is saying is from that day, start your clock. Because 490 years from that, 77 year periods from that point, some stuff is going to happen. Some stuff is going to go down 490 years from there. And here's what's going to go down. Number one, at the end of this 490 year period, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, number two, to make atonement for iniquity, number three, and number four, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Now, there's some other things, too, we're not going to talk about, to seal up vision and prophecy and to the, anoint the most holy place. 
and place is actually not in the original language, it's to anoint the most holy. And I think that's obviously talking about the Christ. Now, that's, this is the only verse we're going to look at, Daniel 9. We could keep reading um, because it talks about specifically when uh, at a certain point in this 490 years, at the very end, the Messiah will come, the prince, the Messiah will come, and he'll be cut off during the middle of this, at the end of it. And, and as a result, uh, there will be all sorts of ha- crazy things that happen in the city of Jer- Jerusalem. So it goes on to talk about the Messiah that will come at the end of this 490 year period. But here's the big deal that I want us to see. At the end of this 490 year period, four things are gonna happen. The finishing of transgression, make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquities, and the bringing in of everlasting righteousness. Now, the decree was given to rebuild Jerusalem, and the the clock started in this biblical prophecy for this stuff to, to come to an end. Now. I don't want to get into the details on eschatology, end time stuff, but when I was growing up, this passage in Daniel chapter 9 was the passage that was used to to teach me and everybody else in our group, in our circle of of, uh, denomination, that there is going to be a future seven-year tribulation, and in this future seven-year tribulation, there's going to be an antichrist, etc., so forth, and it all comes from Daniel chapter 9. Now, I don't want to get into that right here, but the reason why that is the interpretation is because most people, at least in that circle, would not agree that transgression has ended. I mean, on the surface, could we say that transgression has ended? To the, to visit, visit, no, of course, transgression still happens. So obviously that hasn't happened yet. To make an end of sin, well, of course, sin still happens, and so that hasn't happened yet. To make atonement for iniquity, well, that's a little confusing because we can't say that there's going to be another atonement, so we'll just not worry about that one. And to bring in everlasting righteousness, well, there's not everlasting righteousness. I mean, look, it's filthy and, and wicked in the world today. And so there's this group of people called futurists, called, you know, uh, like, like uh, the Left Behind series, all these guys, g- good people. But because they see these things as not yet finished, they have to say, well, we've got to throw that out into the future. So it's not 490 years from the declaration of the rebuilding of the temple uh, of Jerusalem. It's there's a pause and we've got that we're living in a pause and there's going to be a future seven year. The last seven years is going to be the future. And that's when that stuff will actually come to an end. Maybe that's true. But I'm just going to go out on a limb and say when he says 490 years from the time Jerusalem is going to be declared to be rebuilt, these things are going to come to an end. I'm just going to say, hey, those things are going to come to an end. But how are these things come to an end? Let's let's take a look at these things. What I'm getting at is this is what I believe is the it. This is the it. It is finished. Number one, the finish of the transgression. To finish the transgression. Transgression is, um, let me get my notes, transgression. So what was finished? The transgression was finished. Transgression is the accounting of sin upon somebody for the violation of God's law. To transgress means to abandon a a certain path that was laid out. So we, we know other words that end in gress, right? We got progress, progress. That means to what? move forward down a certain track, right? To progress in your 
you know, health or your workouts or whatever. You're, you're going further down. Digress means what? You're, you're going backwards down that track. What is transgress? Trans means to totally jump tracks. You're on a totally different track now. Well, so what's the track in that context? It's the law. To transgress is to not just digress and like kind of do worse. When sin is held against an individual for violation of God's law, the Mosaic law, that person has totally jumped tracks. James says it this way. If you violate just one piece, one part of the Mosaic law, you have violated it all. You have jumped track. And so what Daniel, God through Daniel is saying is, in 490 years, from the day that the declaration comes out, this is what's going to come to an end. Transgression is going to come to an end. Well, how can jumping track, how can changing track, trans change, transformer, you know, something that changes form, how can changing track happen? How can, how can, the stop, how can stopping that happen? Does God take the law? And say, all right, this track we're on here of the law, these 613 laws and rules and regulations, they're too difficult and people keep jumping track. They keep changing track because they violate them. So let's just whittle it down to two easy ones. And most people say, yes, of course, that's what he did. And what are the two simple laws, the two simple rules that are given in most fellowships and congregations? Love the Lord your God and to Love your neighbor as yourself. But what is love the Lord your God? And what is love your neighbor as yourself? Those are two of the what? 613 laws. That's not the new covenant law. That's not the new way. That's just two of the 613 that kind of summarize them all. And so God did not in this new covenant take the track that was really hard and just make it easier so people jump can't don't transgress it don't jump track don't change track so how did he finish the transgression well he finished the transgression by making an end of sin now notice it doesn't say that he made an end of sinning right sinning still happens at least if you hang out with me for a day You'll realize that sinning still happens. So it's not the end of sinning, but it's the end of sin itself. Sin is a loaded word in Christianity. It simply means missing the mark. And this is how God is going to finish the transgression, not by changing the track or changing the standard of the law, but it's by ending sin itself. And how did that happen? Well, how did God end sin? Well, Genesis 5 it's really important to remember, tells us that all of the children of, Abra- of, of, uh, of Adam were created in the image of Adam, not in the image of God. Adam was created in the image of God, but not Adam's children. Adam's children were created in the image of Adam. And what does that mean? They were physically alive, but spiritually dead. We talk about this often because it's so important physically alive, but spiritually dead. To be specific, our bodies upon physical birth, they're alive, our minds are alive, but our inner man, our spirit, our soul is dead to God. In fact, Paul says in Romans 6 and 7 that our inner man and sin in the flesh, he uses the words, are 
joined together, married together. They're married to each other. Our, our inner man and sin in the flesh are actually married together. And Paul explains that the only way to put an end to this, this end of the reign of the marriage between us and our dead human spirit and, and the power of sin in the flesh, the only way to end that is through death, Paul explains. By the one dying, there's now a freedom and ability to now marry another. And he's, of course, talking about now we're able to marry Christ Jesus. So this is how God put an end to sin, is through the death, our death, with Christ on the cross. Because Romans 6, he goes on to say that the death Jesus died, we also died with him, that we died to sin once and for all, so that we can marry this other, be joined to this other, and the other, of course, being Christ himself. So 490 years from the decree to come out, here's what's going to happen. There's going to be a finish to the transgression. There's going to be no more transgressing the law because there's going to be no more marriage to sin, no more union with sin. Okay. But what about all the guilt? What about all the shame? What about all of the condemnation? I mean, is God just going to wink at the guilt and the condemnation that is due upon us? Is he going to say, hey, um, I know you owe me death, eternal, but we're just going to sweep that under the rug? Is he going to do some sort of fancy, like, you know, CPA trick and like, you know, bada bing, bada boom, hey, it's all gone? You know, you don't have to pay taxes on that? What, what is God, how, how does he account for this? It would be impossible for God to just sweep it under the rug because he wouldn't be just. Just means that he is righteous, he's perfect, he's pure. But yet, at the same time, the Bible says that he's the justifier of us. He's just, but yet he makes us just. How can he do that? There's a penalty for sin. There's a penalty. There's a condemnation. There's a guilt. There's a pronouncement of, of guilt upon every human, man, human being. And so he cannot just wink. He cannot just blink his eye and sin the penalty of it be gone there is a penalty and that penalty is death and so in order for the transgression to end the violation of his law he puts an end to sin well how's he going to put the end to sin is by making an atonement for iniquity iniquity is the idea of the guilt and the condemnation uh uh, 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 received for the violation of God's, of God's law. And so he's going to make atonement for it. There's going to be a price that's paid, a sacrifice that's given. Now we're dealing, we're 500 some odd years before Jesus comes into the picture. This, this is saying 490 years bef from the time that this decree happens. And I honestly don't know from this point until when the decree happened, so let's just say 10 years. So this is like 500 some odd years before Jesus even comes. And there's the promise that there's going to come an atonement for iniquity. Now, here's, here's a great thought. Is, was Jesus's death on the cross simply atonement? Well, what does atonement mean? Atonement means covering. In fact, if you have uh, Young's literal translation, that's actually the word he uses in this verse. It's the covering of iniquity. 
Because that's what atonement meant, covering. But did Jesus and his death simply cover our iniquity? Did it just simply cover our condemnation? Did it just cover our guilt? And I would say, no, absolutely not. It didn't just cover it. We know more than what they knew. It actually was taken away. They didn't understand that. There was no way they could understand that. In fact, when this, when prophecy, uh, like with Jeremiah and Jeremiah 31 and different places is given, there's, there's hints of a complete and total taking away, but there was absolutely no ability to understand it because their whole system of sin was this idea of atonement, of covering over sin. But the thing that we should realize here is that it's not just simply a covering, but there, the bigger picture is there's a payment. How did they make atonement in the temple, in the temple system? There was a payment made, the life of a what? An animal, a lamb, a sheep, a goat, whatever it was for that particular sin. There was a payment made. There was a price that was paid to make the atonement. Well, there is a price that was paid. It was also death. There was also blood. But this payment was not simply covering. This payment was the actual taking away of transgression, of sin, of iniquity. And so in 490 years, there's going to be the finishing of, a trans, of transgression. There's no more ability to violate God's law. Why? Because there's going to be an ending of sin. There's no more. The power of sin, the marriage to sin is going to be severed through death. Well, how is that going to happen? Because there's going to be a price that's paid, atonement, a price that's paid, the death of God himself is going, to be, is going to be given so that this sin, this iniquity, this transgression is finished. So God promised there would be atonement. There would be payment for the guilt. And the payment is his very own son, Jesus. So there's no more law breaking the finish of transgression, because there's no more marriage to sin. Jesus, the fulfiller of the law, has now rescued us from our union to sin by, by dying with him. And he himself was the atonement or the payment for our iniquity, not just to cover it, but to completely take it away. But for what purpose? Why was it finished? It being the transgression, sin, and iniquity. Why were they finished it. Why was it finished? To bring in something. To bring in everlasting righteousness. See, I think this is the goal. This is the prize. This is what God delights in. To bring in everlasting righteousness. This is what he had to do one, two, and three, in order to bring in something. He had to take some things out, transgression, sin, and iniquity, in order to bring in everlasting righteousness. So bring in, bring in where? Bring into the world, just generally speaking. Where is this everlasting righteousness being brought? Brought in what? Say me. Me. Me, you, being brought in you to bring into you everlasting righteousness. So he had to bring things out in order to bring something in. 
Could God in his holiness bring in everlasting righteousness without bringing out iniquity, sin, and uh, transgression? He couldn't. Let's just say he did. Let's just say he did. He didn't end transgression. He didn't end your marriage to sin. He didn't end uh, 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 iniquity, the guilt, the condemnation, the shame. He didn't, let's say he didn't end those things in his death on the cross, but yet just brought in everlasting righteousness. What would happen? It's just hypothetical because he wouldn't and he didn't do this. But why did he not do it? What would happen? He brings in everlasting righteousness, but our sin, our guilt, our shame is still on our account. What would happen the very next time we sinned? What would happen the very next time we were guilty of something? That everlasting righteousness would be what? Not so everlasting. <laughs> so the only way to bring in everlasting righteousness is to get rid of anything that's unrighteous, i.e. transgression, sin, and iniquity, because the two cannot coexist. Many of my friends, myself for years, believed, okay, well, certainly the cross, it, it being finished, is the total removal of all my previous sins. It's the past stuff, but I still have the, you know, stuff that I'm accountable for today that I need to get under the blood. I need to get confessed. I need to get some short accounts with God. Let's just say that's the case. It's not a total forgiveness. It's a partial. It's all the stuff from before I was saved. And now that I'm saved, I've got to kind of, you know, double down to get things cleaned up on a daily basis. Well, let's say that's the scenario. Well, once God brings in everlasting righteousness and then I sin, what happens to that everlasting righteousness? It's no longer everlasting righteousness because I now have wickedness. I have defiled the righteousness and he's gone. He's out. So what I'm trying to get us to really believe or truly see is that when he says it is finished, it's in context of his death. And what did his death finish? His death finished the transgression, the violation of the law, the union that we have had with sin and the guilt and the condemnation of our iniquities. He ended it. It finished. For what purpose? So that he himself, let's put a capital E and a capital R, like a proper name. So that he himself, everlasting righteous. Who is our righteousness, Paul says? Who is our righteousness? Who is our sanctification? Who is it? It's Jesus. So that he could bring in himself to live and reign and rule in us. Well, but Walt, but what about all this sinning? What about all this sinning that I do? Look, we have choices to make, sure. And we can walk after the flesh, or we can walk after the spirit, we can make choices. And I'll be the first to confess I don't make the right choice most of, a lot of the times, maybe even most of the time, if we like to take a tally of it all. I don't know. But does that change what he's done? Does it change that the violation of his law has finished that the my marriage the union of my myself to sin has ended and that the guilt and the condemnation has ended it doesn't change it at all because if he's going to bring in everlasting righteousness he has to get rid of these others who is everlasting righteousness is God himself Paul says in Colossians 1 that the great riches of this mystery is the fact that Christ himself is now where in you. And if Christ is in you, then a, a, 
an accounting of transgression, sin, and iniquity is not in you. There can only be one in you. Because if he is counting sins against you and living in you, then he is in violation with his own, his own self. Death was in you. It was in me. But now everlasting life, everlasting righteousness is in you. The violation of God's law was in you. It was in me too. But now everlasting righteousness is in you. Marriage to sin was in you. It was in me too. According to Paul's in everybody upon birth. But now everlasting righteousness is in you. Guilt was in you. The idea of iniquity, the guilt and the condemnation was in you. But now everlasting righteousness is in you. Now, we know that this everlasting righteousness is only a result of the resurrection, meaning the resurrection had to happen. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, there would not be an everlasting righteousness to come into you. It would be a righteousness that ended when Jesus died. So the only way that this righteousness of Christ is everlasting is if there's a resurrection. And so what we have here in this 490 years from the point that this, the, the city is uh, decreed to be rebuilt, the temple's decreed to be rebuilt, after 490 years, you have Jesus hanging on the cross to the day where he is in his death, finishing the transgression, making an end to sin, and making an atonement for our iniquities, so that to bring in, to bring into who? To what? To you, upon his resurrection, everlasting righteousness. The entrance of God into man is the goal. It's the desire of God himself. But he had to do a work in order for that to happen. He had to do a work. He had to end the violation of his law. He had to end union with sin. He had to end the guilt and the condemnation of iniquity that was due us. And how did he end these things? He ended these things in his death. His death. His death ended sin, our union with it, transgression of the law, and the guilt and condemnation of iniquities. And what I'm trying to communicate to you, Daniel 9 is much broader. There's other things in Daniel 9 that are so glorious that that support what we just shared, the, the verses following. But for time's sake, what I'm trying to communicate to you is when Jesus received the sour wine, as Brandon beautifully pointed out last week, which was a picture, a shadow of the receiving of the iniquity, the guilt, the transgression into himself, he said, it is finished. What is it that's finished? These things, an end to transgression, an end to our union with sin itself, and the condemnation, the guilt of our actions. Why did he take those things out? Why did he end those things? Why did he remove those things? To bring in something, someone, himself into us everlasting righteousness. So our journey marker this morning is, is it finished 
or not. So we really have got to decide. Is it finished or not? If it is finished, then let us not live as though it's not finished. Meaning, if it is finished, if the thing really is finished, the counting of sins, the, the, the inability in God's kingdom to even violate his law because he's put an end to sin, he's put an end to death and his resurrection, he's put an end to the guilt and condemnation, then why are we on a daily basis, so many of us, continuing to live defeated, guilt-driven, religious lives, considering God angry with us, mad at us, still holding our sins against us on a daily basis? How can we live with eternal, everlasting righteousness in us if we are always fixated on the sinning we continue to do when the sins themselves have been taken away. Think about who, if this is true, if it really is finished, transgression, sin, iniquity, if those things really are finished by the once and for all death of Jesus, who is it that would want you to not believe that it's finished? <sighs> yeah. Who is it that would want to get you to think that God is still holding your sins against you, still holding you condemned, still holding you guilty? You can think about it. Is that the Holy Spirit? See, here's the twisted teaching that I had most of my life, that the Holy Spirit's in you to convict you and condemn you every time that you sin so that you then confess your sins, so that you can then get right with God again. How twisted is that? Does the Holy Spirit guide us in truth? Yeah, we looked at it when we went through John 16. Yes, He guides us into the truth. But never does the Scripture say that He condemns us or convicts us of sins. So, who is it that wants us to be condemned, to feel the condemnation? Who is it that wants us to not believe that it's finished? Who is it that wants us to, to say, thank you, Jesus, for, for forgiving of my, my past sins, but man, these present ones and my future ones, I've got to really do better to get them under the blood because, well, you know, there's no way that they are already under the blood. How can we live an everlasting righteousness life if we're continuously fixated on trying to fix sins. It's kind of like, I think I was telling Craig yesterday on the phone, it's kind of like, you know, pick your sporting event, think basketball. It's like trying to play a game of basketball, always concerned with what the referee is about to do. Is he going to blow the whistle? Is he going to do, is he going to, is he going to call this foul? Is he going to call that? Like, that's all you're worried about. You're not worried about playing. You're not worried about, you're not, you're not concentrating on playing the game. You're just concentrating on not screwing up. That's not basketball. That's, I don't even know what that is. It's not playing. That's just trying your best to not mess up. And I'm just saying that's not Christianity. Christianity is not trying your best to not mess up so that you feel better about yourself. 
Christianity is living by faith that it is finished. He no longer counts your sins against you. They were all counted. They were all counted once and for what? All. Are we going to believe that? Are we going to rest in that? What happens when we do rest in that? What happens when we rest in that? The weight of that guilt and that condemnation and that fear is lifted off of our shoulders. It's put onto the shoulders that it was intended to be put on, which is Christ himself. And now he, having paid for that, he now is able to live his life. His, he is the Christian life. He is now able to live his life by his spirit through us. And what do we now get to start seeing being projected through us? Love, joy, peace, patience. I can tell you there was no peace for me when I was under religion. No peace at all. Because I was always worried about, did the ref just blow the whistle? No peace. And, and what ends up happening, uh, I know Larry is in, you know, uh, you, you ref much? Did you ref much or, or just? Yeah. It, if you just spend all your time focused on what the ref might call, what are you going to end up doing? You're going to end up stepping out of bounds. You're going to end up, you know, double dribbling. You're going to end up because you're not focused on just playing the game. And so as believers, I think it's incumbent upon us to just believe what he said. It isn't just simply his ministry. It isn't just, you know, his earthly ministry. It isn't the suffering. It that's finished is the complete and total accounting of sins. Transgressions, iniquity, it is finished. For what purpose? Three days are coming. In three days, there's a resurrection so that everlasting righteousness now lives in you. So what lives and reigns in you? Don't say sin, transgressions, and iniquities. You can choose to do those things, sure. The power of sin, yeah, it's still alive in these mortal bodies, yeah. But it is not who you are, and it's not who you're joined to, for you are joined to the one who is everlasting righteousness. So instead of going through the day trying to make sure that we don't mess up, that we don't fail him, that we don't whatever, what if we went throughout the day realizing who is in us and who loves us and who, and who regardless of what choices, good or bad, we make, is never leaving us and never forsaking us, that upholds us with his righteous right hand. I think we make some pretty good shots, if that's the case. But that's not what the enemy wants. And so that's why we have this wrestle, spiritual warfare of law versus grace, of truth versus mixture. And I cannot get through John 19 and Jesus' statement of it is finished without taking at least one Sunday for us to be convinced even further of what is actually finished. And we can live as if it is because it is. Thank you again for listening to today's podcast of the teaching at Life Journey Church in Crozet, Virginia. We'd love to hear from you. If God is doing something special in your life, let us know by sending an email to info at lifejourneyva.com. Feel free to pass today's teaching on to any friends and family that you'd like, but please don't change any of it or charge for it. This podcast is made available for free as a ministry of Life Journey Church. If you would like to support the proclamation of the gospel of the grace of God, you can make a donation now on our website, lifejourneyva.com. 
Have a great day.